so great to have you all with us. I'm Jolene Jackson. I'm with Moms for America. <laughs> I've been involved <laughs> with Moms for America, where liberty begins at home for 10 years, teaching the cottage meetings, speaking around the country, helping mothers to understand what cottage meetings is, how powerful they are. So we come to you tonight, not only from Moms for America, but Families for America, because in the evenings we have dads, we have grandfathers, we have dudes online, and hence I recruit my husband Al of 30 years to teach along with me. So we are families for America tonight. Um, you know, I know you wouldn't be here if you were worried about the state of our nation, the state of your families, your children, your grandchildren. They're growing up in uh, increasingly godless communities. Schools, curriculums are godless, and it, it feels almost like anti-American. And so if we don't understand the principles of liberty and the stories and miracles of America, they're probably not going to get it in the school systems or the universities. And so I salute you tonight. We're here. We're trying. We're on that wall. Lord, here we are. Please expand our minds and our memories and our understanding and comprehension. So Al and I have five children, mm-hmm. ages 27 on down to 14. And we, as we begin to learn these principles of liberty, as we begin to study them and attend classes on freedom through the Thomas Jefferson Center for Constitutional Studies, we would come home and we begin to weave in uh, to our little family devotional where we would study the Bible and we'd sing every day and pray. Well, we began to weave these stories of a miracle and principles from the constitution in to our family devotionals. And uh, now that most of our kids are out of the home, I still send a little text devotional with a patriotic quote and a scripture or a spiritual quote and my testimony of, of what I've sent them. And then pictures of what Al and I are are doing right now. And so we kind of, that's how we keep, that's how I continue. We continue to bear testimony, even to our adult children of the importance of America and doing our part. So my little daughter, um, our daughter, our oldest daughter, Kayla, just taught the lesson. So we, on Wednesday afternoons at 12 noon central standard time, we have been teaching the 12 introductory cottage meeting lessons. We're on lesson number 10 yesterday, lesson number 10, and it was how to teach the constitution to your children. And so the 27 year old daughter taught that class. It's called the wheat and the chaff. And uh, it was so good. <laughs> if I do say so myself, it's she just taught like her mama. She's a wonderful teacher. <laughs> well, I was like, well, all right. It, something really did sink because mostly when kids are teenagers and they're trying to pretend like they're not listening or they're trying to sleep through what you're trying to teach them, you wonder if it's just all for naught. And she actually said in her class, you know, I know we gave our parents a hard time, and I, you know, I thought mom was crazy and dad was crazy with some of their conspiratorial theories they would teach when we were teaching them from seminar three, the unhinging of America. And she said, it's like, it's all coming to pass mm-hmm. and how it, it impacted her uh, learning these principles at 15, 16. And, and now she's teaching classes on the constitution at 27. So what I'm saying mamas and daddies, grandmas and grandpas, just because your kids aren't, you know, acting super excited, maybe when you share with them some of the things you're learning, just keep doing it. It will bear fruit. I promise you, God will bless your efforts and it will rise up. These teaching will will rise up and bless your children and grandchildren in their hour of need. And they will remember what you had uh, shared with them. And so anyways, we are at the start. We're on our third lesson, actually, of this 12-week lesson, a 12-week series called, is the camera okay? The 5,000-year no, leap. I look delicious. Of course, I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. Oh, I look fuzzy. <laughs> so anyways, this 5,000-year leap class, this is a new curriculum. So we've done, through our Moms from America curriculum, we've done the Healing of America seminar, and it's for four seminars it takes 16 weeks this is such a good series it will lay the bedrock foundation of history of our constitution what has gone wrong in our country and what we can do to be about the healing of america 
Those classes are, have been all recorded. It's me teaching singly to mothers in the day. And then Al and I teaching in the evenings, you can watch all 16 weeks. I would so recommend uh, that, that Healing of America series. And then also the 12 introductory cottage lessons on how to raise up the next generation of patriots. Sometimes mamas are, are overwhelmed with the thought that, oh my word, how do I teach my kids to love America? And so we just systematically take you through these 12 uh, weeks lessons of how to do that. And all those have been recorded as well. And we have live classes Wednesday uh, at 12 Central Standard Time, but we're just, we only have two classes left of those live classes. And then the only class we'll be teaching live is this 5,000 year late class. Now this 5,000 year late class is brand new curriculum for us, but the principles, these 20 ideas or ingredients that our founders used to establish this land are woven throughout the Healing of America seminar and the 12 introductory lessons. So if you've attended any of those classes, these principles should kind of begin to ring familiar to them. And it's the, the whole idea that under these principles uh, that were embedded in our constitution in 1787, within 200 years, we were putting a man on the moon. Now, previous to that 5,000 millennia before that, we were still using the same horse and the same plow and the ox and the cart and weaving our clothes on the, on the wheel. And then these, these principles of freedom embedded in the constitution unlocked um, freedom. It was an experiment on freedom and it unlocked human engineer, ingenuity. And we began to innovate and create and we began to be able to own our labor and to own property and what it did to the human spirit. Mm -hmm. And it's what allowed the United States after a hundred years of living under these principles of the constitution, we were producing at the, at, towards the end of the 18, 1800s, we were producing over 50% of the world's wealth, even though we had 6% of the world's population. And we can see in the last 100, 120, 150 years, as we strayed away from those principles, we're not doing so well anymore. And we really explain that in the Healing of America seminar number three, the attacks on the charter of freedom, the unhinging of this country. And so it's so important to know these 28 ideas that were a part of um, um, making America was what it was. And you know these principles are proven. We just have to go back and look at history and see what happened. And so we don't even have to like surmise, you know, will we be able to heal our land if we use them? We know that, that we will. And as we learn these principles, we write them on our hearts, we memorize them, we began to speak differently. So instead of, you know, all the emotionalism and criticism and negativity of the day, you speak from principle and you completely change the conversation when you, when you address a, you know, a problem with principle. And, and I'll give some examples tonight. And so will Al of how that looks, you know, and, and you can refute the, the emotionalism and lies that are running rampant when you speak on principle. And so I really want to recommend, hopefully you've all gotten the student manual edition, all right, of the 5,000 year leap. Now you can get the book as well on Amazon. You can get it the next day. But the thing that I like about the student manual that you can get at KimberCurriculum.com is it's fill in the blank. So it's a good way to um, you actually learn when you have multiple multiple sensory experiences when you can listen and write and touch and see and feel and when you use cursive your brain actually remembers that fluid motion you remember actually the emotions that you're feeling more when you write in cursive versus print with it which is so interesting now they're not teaching children how to write in cursive for several reasons. You can't read original documents, you know, all the founders wrote in cursive, so you wouldn't be inclined to read that. And you don't actually retain as much when you write in print. So get in the habit of sticking with your cursive. You also can take better notes in the student manual than you can in the book. And it also 
gives you an idea of how you might someday be able to hold your own cottage meeting in your home with a 5,000 year leap. You would gather five, six, 10 people and you would just go through and read it together and fill in the blank and maybe stop after every section and have a conversation about it. It doesn't have to be any harder than that. You don't have to be an expert on these principles. You don't have to be a constitutional scholar or a historian. You learn together and the keys with all the answers are in the back of the book. So I hope you've also went and ordered your, what was it, 100 bookmarks with all the principles on them for five bucks from the National Center for Constitutional Studies.net, nccs.net for five bucks. You'll get 100 of these um, bookmarks with the principles and you just put them in your cars, in your books, in your purses. And you begin to memorize these principles. And I promise you, they will feel like they're your best friends as they kind of rise up and help you in your hour of need when you, you want to say something intelligent in response to something wild that someone has said to you. So the very first week, we talked about this monumental task that our founders had in establishing this first free people in modern times. And, and how were they going to form this government? They wanted to have enough government so there wouldn't be anarchy, complete, you know, out of control, lawlessness, but not too much government. So it would start to look tyrannical or, or kingly, which mostly that's what people have throughout history have come up under is this kingly ruler's law. So they established the government right in the middle, the balance center, people's law. And, and they, they modeled this type of government after who? Moses. So in our studies right now, in our family, we're, we're reading right now about uh, in um, Exodus 18, how Moses came to Jethro and he was worn out. He was hearing all the people's problems. And Jethro said, you're going to wear yourself out. You need to get a, a representative type of government. You need to have a captain over 10 families and, and uh, a captain over 50 families and a captain over 100 and, and a captain over 1,000. And you, it says in Exodus 18, 26, you will hear the hard causes brought to you, Moses, but every small matter will be judged for themselves. And that is consistent with principle 21 that strong local self-government will be the keystone to preserving freedom. Let people at the local level figure out and solve their problems because they're closest to the problem and they know how to best solve it. And they'll be able to uh, dictate what they want in their own communities, not, you know, lop it over to uh, the governor or better yet, the president of the United States, 3000 miles away in Washington, DC. And so this is what they did. They modeled our founders under uh, this representative government that they noted was formed in uh, Moses in Exodus and Deuteronomy. And also the Anglo-Saxons had the identical governmental structure and laws that Moses did. And a, a lot of people think um, that those were some of the descendants of the lost tribes of Israel that went up north and retain some of that people's law and that representative government uh, of, of Moses. And they were able to hold on to that type of government for about 500 years, the Anglo-Saxons from about 450 uh, AD to about 900 AD. Okay, so we learned our first and second principles last week and their foundational principles. I hope those principles really spoke to you that the most reliable basis for strong government and just human relations, how we treat our brothers and sisters is based on natural law. And Cicero, that Roman thinker that died 40 years before Jesus Christ was born, 43 BC said, his brilliant mind could discern there had to be, have been a supreme creator in the universe and his order of things, his laws are what we need to follow. And he called it natural law that as we, as we reverence, as we love our supreme creator, we naturally want to love one another because we want justice. We want to be treated fairly kind of the whole uh, golden rule that you know we want to be we want to be treated the way uh, we want to treat others the way we would want to be treated we want to be loved so why would we love you know god's creations 
you know, and want to follow his order of the universe that he called natural law. And Thomas Jefferson embedded the phrasing of natural law or nature's law or uh, the supreme creator five times within the Declaration of Independence. And then our second principle was the best way to maintain this republic constitution, meaning a self-government form of, uh, of laws where we self-govern ourselves. The only way we can maintain that is if we are virtuous and morally strong. So we look to our creator and his laws and that's who we follow, all right? So we can best uh, govern ourselves and not look to masters to tell us what to do. So this leads us into, okay, well, how do we stay morally strong and virtuous? How do we stay upright and honest and honorable? Principle three tells us, well, we elect virtuous leaders. That's how we do it. You know, that's one of the reasons I did not vote for Donald Trump in 2016 because of all those revelations with the women that were coming out in 2015. I thought, how can I, he doesn't seem to be morally stable or virtuous, so I didn't vote for him. But over the course of four years, I changed my mind because mm -hmm. I saw how he interacted with his children. They were like his closest friends, his closest advisors. Moms for America actually did several things with uh, the president and his wife. And so I was able to observe him when the cameras weren't on him. And I saw, oh, that union looked so legitimate and they looked very close and they would talk. And, and I thought, oh, you know, the media would portray that marriage to be the opposite of that. And so as I viewed the, the way he kept his children so close to him, and it's interesting, President Biden, we live in Washington, D.C., we never see, he has a daughter, I, I never, do you ever see him with his children? And certainly Hunter Biden has caused him so much grief. He, he, I haven't seen Hunter Biden at the White House in a long while, maybe since the inauguration. And it was interesting how Trump, during all the writings that were going on, he would often evoke God. We need to turn back to God. He would hold up the Bible. He was the first president in the history of our country to attend the right to life rally held every year on the mall, which said so much. And he talked about motherhood, how he reverenced it and were the creators. And then just think of his vice president, uh, Pence, and what a, a religious man he was. And so I changed my mind over the course of four years and I did vote for him. But we need to elect virtuous leaders. Samuel Adams had this sobering fact concerning our political survival, a beautiful quote there, you see it in the third principle, but neither the wisest constitution nor the wisest laws will secure the liberty and happiness of the people whose manners are universally corrupt. He therefore is the truest friend to liberty of this country who tries most to promote its virtue and who so far as his power and influence extend will not suffer a man to be chosen into office of power and trust who is not wise and virtuous. Now, a popular um, and favorite verse scripture of that time, and I hope of this time too, in Proverbs 29 two, said that when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when the wicked beareth rule, the people mourn. And so when we let the wicked rule, when we let people in positions be placed in governmental positions, that are wicked or just anti-God, they don't reverence natural law. What did Sister Rose uh, say last week? That kind of legislation that's not based on the, the person, the, the God who created us, the supreme being, he said, it's a scourge to humanity to make legislation or laws that are contrary to the supreme uh, creator of this universe. And so you see anti-God legislation being passed and, and, you know, you see families are really suffering. Society is suffering as we, you know, um, legislated immorality, as we see uh, the uh, transgenderism and LGBTQ curriculums and policies and critical race theories are being uh, promulgated upon our children causing kids to be confused and angry and depressed. And you can see it. 
our young people are not doing so well because of anti-curriculums and policies and legislation. It's a scourge to humanity. Now, if men were angels, we wouldn't have any need for uh, government, it says in the Federalist Paper 51. But our founders knew that there was a little bit of mixture in good and bad. We're not angels. And so they hoped to develop a spirit of public virtue, of, of, of strong private virtue as well for, for future leaders. And they hoped that it would be kind of known as a Freeman aristocracy or a natural aristocracy in, a, in opposed to uh, the aristocracy that they saw in Europe where, where people would rise to high offices because of wealth or the reputation of their ancestors. Thomas Jefferson particularly talks about this natural aristocracy that you rise on your personal merit because you are honorable and upstanding and wise and virtuous. And so Al is gonna talk about this. Okay, great. Thank you, Julini. So when you think about aristocracy, you think about the words rich, bourgeoisie, wealth, nobility, and so forth. But as Julene just highlighted, Thomas Jefferson really typified the founders' philosophy of societal responsibility. And they believe, the founders believe, that the best candidates, the best candidates should accept major roles in public office. So let's think about that today in terms of who we have in office leading the country. They thought that the best citizens should be the ones that serve. So George Washington was the guidestone. And his service, he served despite longing to be in Mount Vernon, his beloved Mount Vernon. In fact, he came out of retirement three times to serve his country because his country called him. He was one of the best citizens on the planet at that time in the United States. So he left his, his plantation in Mount Vernon to be part of the lead the Revolutionary War as a general. He left to preside over the Constitutional Convention. And then thirdly, he left to become president where he served two terms. And so Jefferson referred to such people as the natural aristocracy, as Jelaine highlighted. The artificial aristocracy are the elite. And those are the ruling classes that we learn about in Europe. You know, the founders were students of history and they understood that in most countries outside of America, those individuals who obtained those offices usually came from wealth or some significant influence that they had in the community. And they, and they oversaw, they were the quote unquote elite. Back in France in particular, only one in five people could actually read. So you can imagine they were very dependent oh. on the government upon those who were the elite. So a natural aristocracy is built upon the attributes of virtue and talents. And an artificial aristocracy is built upon wealth and birth. And the founders preferred natural aristocracy. So these were the individuals that were drafted into service. They, they tried to avoid people who were ambitiously looking for, to be in office. They wanted people to consider it an honor to serve not a birthright, to serve for a time period and then to go home back into society. So today we've got folks who've been in office 35, 40, 48 years, the Mitch McConnells, the Nancy Pelosi's, the Jim Clyburns, Diane Feinstein from California is now 88 years old. And for the last few years, cognitively, she's just declined. And so the staffs are pretty much running out of office. And you've got folks like Chuck Grassley who just come to office and they serve and they stay forever. So Ben Franklin leads a discussion on making public office an honor rather than a position of profit. So the founders learn a lot from what to do, what not to do from Europe, because the people there fought like heck, like crazy to get those positions in the government. So Franklin said this, he said, sir, there are two passions which have a powerful influence in the affairs of men. These are ambition and avarice. 
the love of power and the love of money. Place before the eyes of such men a post of honor that shall at the same time be a place of profit and they will move heaven and earth to obtain it. That's why they wanted to keep salaries low. So right now, according to the Congress, House members and Senate members are paid about $174,000 per year, which in Washington, D.C. is really not a lot. And some members have to maintain two households. That's, that's not, I mean, in average America, that's quite a bit of money. But living here in D.C., it's hard to live on that and maintain a home. But I do know from personal experience that the bureaucrats, the GS-13s, the GS-14s, and GS-15s, making upwards of $180,000 a year, which is a pretty good salary. And as I walk through those buildings over at Homeland Security and the Pentagon, it doesn't look like there's a whole lot of work that's going on. And, and these people are working two or three days a week. And it's, it's, it's really interesting. Washington was offered a salary of $25,000 and he turned it down. He didn't take a salary. And I don't believe President Trump actually took a salary as well. But then you've got people who become rich in and out of office, folks like Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden, Maxine Waters, Barack Obama, the Clintons, they become millionaires. So I'm going to hand it back over to Jelaine to highlight Franklin's prophecy. Yeah, so Benjamin Franklin, hey, there's a an excellent, I, I, I don't know if it's excellent. We're going to watch it. One of my friends said that it was supposed to be good. Uh, Ken Burns, it came out oh, April Ken Burns actually is pretty 4th. Good. Yeah, a two-part series on PBS, I believe, on Benjamin Franklin. Did anyone watch that? If you did, yeah. put it in the chat. Let yeah. us know. Ken Burns actually does pretty good work because he did the Civil War series. Did he? So yeah. he just came out with Just a... make sure you get some sleep before you watch it. <laughs> yeah, you can't be tired. Uh, and so, and, and maybe don't put a blanket on you either. Be cold when you watch it. But um, anyways, so Benjamin Franklin, known as the Golden Patriot, the father of morality, which is so not what most people think, because modern historians have done a number on Benjamin Franklin. He made this prophecy that if we made the lure of too high of salaries associated with public office, we will have a tendency to swing towards kingly government because we'll start to make those posts of honor places of profit instead. And so what will happen is these leaders will get in office and they'll like the salary and they'll like the perks and they'll like the titles and the fame and the power and they won't wanna leave. So the only way that they can stay in office is to um, spend. And when they spend money on their constituents with special programs, then the people will reelect them. But the only way that they can keep spending is they have to allow for taxes to go up. And so for order, in order for them to stay in office, they ultimately spend, they tax, they spend, and then they get reelected. Right. So be, be, be aware of any member in your state legislature or even the federal government that tells you that they love being in office. Those are the people that you want to avoid. Those are the people that their first name becomes senator or representative. Those are the ones that are the problem. Yeah, yeah. I saw that firsthand. Yeah, Al served in the state legislature and there were people that served for decades. I had, yeah. I actually sat next to, and I'm not going to say his name, <laughs> but you know how most people have on their screensaver pictures of the country or their family or something that's notable? On his screensaver was a picture of himself. <laughs> he had been in office one too many years, I think. <laughs> and I think I was playing golf with one of them. And we were we were riding a golf cart. And I just I just said, this guy's getting on my nerves. He was in the House. I was in the Senate. And I said, could you pull over here? Because I don't think there's room enough for our cart for me and your ego. So I'm just going to get out and walk the rest <laughs> so of the way. So that's what happens <laughs> when you're in office too long. You begin to feel like, you know, you are you are kingly in nature and that's stature. Right, that's right. I started wearing a crown. Oh, yeah. yeah mm -hmm. No, no, I wouldn't allow that. So what our founders wanted <laughs> was for people to serve, to do their duty for a time to do their public service we'll and go then home. go back home. In fact, uh, Franklin cites the high sheriff position in England. It was an honorable office where 
principal gentlemen in the country would do good, would serve their country, but there was very little financial compensation. And so, and then, he, and then he did. He held up at the Constitutional Convention the example of George Washington. And in, in the little quote there, he didn't want to embarrass, you know, uh, George Washington, but he reminded them for eight years, he didn't take a salary except uh, just to be compensated for his personal expenses. And the only reason George Washington took a salary once he became president for eight years is he felt that some future presidents might need that salary and he didn't want to set the precedent that the jobs should be done for nothing. Oh, I, I thought he didn't take money. No, he, oh, he didn't take money for the revolution. Yeah, he didn't War. take money for the eight years he served as general, okay. but he took the $25,000 oh, a year salary because- I misspoke, I'm sorry. Yeah, did you- oh, I did say that. Right, right. So, so I, I dare say he might not have even taken that salary, but he realized that, you know, maybe they should get something because he probably knew how, what an onerous, onerous, you know, responsibility it was, but um, nevertheless, and, and Benjamin Franklin was such a good example of this himself. He was the oldest delegate in the constitutional convention into his eighties, but he was still in, he was a businessman and he still served on the Pennsylvania Committee of Safety. He was the chairman. So it says in, in the readings, they're putting principles into practice that Benjamin Franklin would get up at 6 a.m. and he would serve on that and conduct the business of that committee for safety out of Pennsylvania, his home state. And then he would work from nine to four at, uh, in the Constitutional Convention. He sounds like Glenn Kimber. Yeah, and I, I dare say he was not taking a, a salary for that or a very minimal salary. And so what is the formula for producing these kind of leaders of character and virtue that just do it because they want to give back and do their part for the land that they love? Well, you know, um, how, how do we, you know, develop these kind of superior characters in our, our leaders? I think if you look to the founders and you study their writings and you, you read in this book, The 5,000 Year Leap, all the numerous quotations that we're going to study over the next 10 weeks, you will be able to see that they were carefully taught in their families, in their churches, in their schools and elsewhere, and that they uh, were believers in a broad spectrum of fundamental similar principles that they called self-evident truth, that as they studied the Bible, as they studied these ancient thinkers of John Locke and Cicero and Montesquieu and Blackstone, that it was clear what truth was. And it takes me back to Exodus that I was studying with Jethro today, that Jethro told Moses in Exodus 18, I think it's 21 or 26, you need to select able-bodied men who fear God and seek truth. And that's what our founders did as they were all reading out of the Bible and reading these thinkers, they were coming to the same conclusion and coming to the same truths. And so, you know, how in the world do we find leaders like that today? I can tell you, I do like that uh, U.S. District Judge Catherine Mazel who is actually upholding her assignment as a federal judge to be a guardian of the constitution when she declared a few days ago that CDC mass mandate was unlawful, she called it. It was a, an overreach of regulatory power. According to the constitution- you see a picture of her? Yeah, do you have a picture of her? She's young and her critics are really having a heyday with how young she is. She's 35 years old, was a Trump appointee. And she said, look, this regulatory overreach by the CDC is unconstitutional. We know as we studied the Constitution and Healing of America Seminar Number 1 that the only laws that can be passed nationally will be done by our vetted legislators who have been elected by the people. And regulatory law was intended just to oversee and help the executive branch run smoothly. And somehow it is morphed into them being able to put forth national mandates, which mm -hmm. is unlawful. And she had the courage to rise up and, and say that. And we know that that's going to be appealed right now, but I'm the game on. We, we like leaders like that. So what, how do we ensure we have virtuous and morally strong leaders? Well, we vet them. 
we go to community meetings, to school boards, to town halls to kind of kind of know what they're saying. And then we go to meet the, the candidate night or we invite them into our home to our cottage meetings. I've had cottage meetings where I've invited people running for office and we ask them questions like, uh, where do you think the constitution has gone wrong and how are you gonna fix it? Or what are your thoughts on a uh, critical race theory or mass mandates, or how do you feel about abortion? I mean, put them on the hotspot and see, see if they squirm. Or you could ask them by teaching them a principle first. So like, this is principle number four we're gonna talk about. You could say, so we know that religion, you know, we can't maintain our country without religion. A free people can't be maintained without religion. So what are you gonna to do pr to protect our religious liberties? Or you could say, this is principle 21. We know that strong local self-government is the keystone to preserving human freedom. So uh, what are you gonna do to ensure we have more local control in our schools? So see how you teach the principle first and then you ask them the question. And so that is how we'll ensure we gotta get involved. We, get to, we gotta get to know these people. We gotta ask them, put them on the hot seat which leads us then to, okay, how do we maintain this kind of high character in a leader? Well, our founder said it was through religion and God, and that is principle number four that Al is gonna take us into. Okay, thank you, Julie. Thank you, teacher of the year. <laughs> no, I don't, but I do like, I do like our, our little very, judge there, Catherine Mizell. Right, okay, we're gonna use that later. All right, so, Many Americans fail to realize that the founders felt that the role of religion would be an import, as an important in our day as it was in their day. So religion and morality were at the forefront of their minds and thoughts. So in, in 1787, while they're having the Constitutional Convention, the Continental Congress passes legislation that encourages the teaching of religion, morality, and knowledge in the schools. So as you look at the slide here, these were not states at the time of the formation of, of America. So in 1787, it was basically called the Northwest Territory, but they knew people were moving there and eventually they would become states. So the, so the Continental Congress put together the procedures and plans necessary for these areas to become states. And one thing to note that they also prohibited slavery from being established in this region, because going back to what we talked about previously, the founders knew that it was wrong. There was a consensus among all of them. How can we ask for or fight for freedom from a tyrannical Great Britain when we actually own slaves ourselves? So that, that was a common theme throughout the Constitutional Convention. And we'll talk more about that when we get back into the Healing of America seminars. But if they could keep slavery contained in the South and leave it there, it would eventually die out. So Article 3, religion, morality, and knowledge being necessary to good government and the happiness of mankind, schools and the means of education shall forever be encouraged. See, the key word there is encouraged. They knew that the federal government wasn't supposed to be involved in education, but they wanted to encourage it. And so religion, religion is a fundamental system of beliefs concerning man's origin and relationship to the cosmic universe, as well as his relationship with his fellow man. Going back to the first two commandments, loving God and then loving your fellow man. Morality was a standard of behavior of distinguishing, distinguishing right from wrong. Morality, knowing right from wrong. And then knowledge was an intellectual awareness and understanding of established facts relating to any field of human experience or inquiry, history, science, geography, math, and so forth. And so the founders understood the need to have these three things taught in the schools. Now, this is a famous quote. It's actually prophetic. The philosophy of the schoolroom in one generation will be the philosophy of government in the next. Now, now let that settle in as you all read that slide, because we're seeing that today. The philosophy of the schoolroom in one generation will be the philosophy of government in the next. So when you start sowing 
the seeds of ridiculousness in the school where we, instead of talking about your identity in Christ, today the schools are focused on race, gender, and sexual identity. Our 18-year-old who goes to government schools his last year, fortunately, even in gym class, they weave in race, sexual identity, and gender identity. And it's so important that we firm up our children within the four walls of our house before we send them out into the world. And instead of focusing on helping kids read, write, and do arithmetic, only one in five kids of color in this country can read at grade level, one in five. But instead, we're focused on racial identity, sexual identity, gender identity. So when you look at, uh, when you go back, one of the things that I would encourage you all to do is read George Washington's farewell address. And it used to be a standard reading in schools and even law schools, because if, if we remember back to that moment in Valley Forge, George Washington actually saw a vision. And in that vision, he actually saw the future of America because the Lord knew that he needed strengthening because things are really dire. They were really bad. And a man of lesser metal would have just crumbled. But instead, the Lord showed him a vision. You're going to win. And this is what America is going to look like. And so I'm certain that George Washington had this in mind in his farewell address. Because it's a, if you read it, it's so prophetic in terms of what's going on today. So I invite you to read that. And this is what he had to say in it. Of all dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, Religion and morality are indispensable supports. And let us with caution indulge the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion. Reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail to the exclusion of religious principles. And that you hear from George Washington. Okay, Jelini. You're so if you're, if you're curious about that vision that Al talked about, we learned about that in Healing of America seminar number one. So just watch seminar number one, and we talk about that vision and and a little bit. It's of, a really cool story. Yeah, it, mm -hmm. it is, and and the it, that vision is captured in the Library of Congress uh, by a, a man that George Washington told him, and then he wrote it down, and it's it's at, in the Library of Congress. So our founders wanted the universal fundamental principles of religion to be taught. So Thomas Jefferson actually wrote a bill establishing uh, elementary schools in Virginia when he was serving, I think, in the legislature in Virginia. And he said he, he wanted religion to be a unifying cultural uh, adhesive rather than a divisive apparatus. So he actually says here, no religious reading instruction or exercise shall be prescribed or practiced inconsistent with the tenets of any religious sect or denomination. Now, obviously, that puts a lot of restrictions on what can be taught then in the public schools. So the precepts that he wanted and our founders wanted to be taught were going to be universal precepts that would have been accepted by all faiths and completely fundamental mm -hmm. in precept. And so Benjamin Franklin, they talked about this. He described what the five fundamentals of sound religion would be considered. And here, here it is. He said, I believe in one God, the creator of the universe, that he governs it by his providence, that he ought to be worshiped that the most acceptable service we render to him is in doing good to other his other children, that the soul of man is immortal and will be treated with justice in another life, respecting his conduct and this. And these I take to be the fundamental points of sound religion. So that is what Benjamin Franklin said. So to break it out in, into the into five points that would become known as the universal or American religion is just number one here. It's in your book. It's here on the slide that there is a creator who made all things and that mankind should recognize and worship him. Now see if you're the religion that you practice falls. If you believe in these five tenets, we'll, we'll see if they're sound religions and you can see how principle one 
would weave into that first point. And even principle five that we'll talk about next week, how we're all created by God and therefore we all we are all responsible and dependent upon him. That's principle five we'll talk about. So even these principles of liberty kind of weave into these five fundamentals that they want to taught in schools. Number two, the creator has revealed a moral code of behavior for happy living, which distinguishes between right and wrong. Okay, so what does natural law say? What does revealed divine law say? Okay, and, and revealed divine law is in the word, the, the Bible. What is the supreme being order of the universe say? All right, that's his, his laws. Number three, the creator holds mankind responsible for the way that we treat each other. So that's principle one and principle five is woven into that fundamental precept. All men will live beyond this life. Isn't that interesting? An eternal realm. And in the next life, we will be judged by how we behaved and how we treated one another. So all of these tenets ran through practically all of our founders' writings. And these were the beliefs that they would refer to as the religion of America. And they felt that these fundamentals were important to providing good government and happiness amongst mankind. And they wanted these precepts, this universal religion taught in the school systems, along with morality knowledge of right and wrong and knowledge. So just imagine if you were to go to the next school board and you were to evoke these mm -hmm. five tenets and talk about the Northwest ordinance and how they wanted these principles put in. And that's why it was, it, it's a scourge to have sexually explicit materials in the school library or porno, pornographic materials or a curriculum that's going to churn them up and make them hate each other and see one as a victim and one as a victor. So you could use, you know, these ideas to speak with greater strength and authority that our founders wanted this kind of thing because it would foster better relations. It would make us happier. It well, was well, moms from America pay for their bail after they get arrested <laughs> no okay. because they they won't be speaking and spewing emotion and having their heads turn <laughs> like chickens they will be speaking strongly and confidently on principle with the backing of benjamin franklin and and all these great founders <laughs> and so our founders talked about these five fundamentals and they all gave statements of support for them samuel adams says it's the religion of america it's the religion of all mankind these five tenets john adams said these tenets are the general principles upon which american civilization has been founded thomas jefferson said these basic principles in which God has united us all. And of course, we know, you know, they felt that they were going to be the cornerstone of strong government. And George Washington, after just recently viewing the horrendous uh, bloodbath and the wild excesses of the French Revolution that was led and promoted by atheists and immorality, where they seized control of France, this is why he said what he did. Uh, in, in that farewell address, because he had witnessed, you know, when when godless leaders run amok and immorality mm -hmm. reigns supreme in a country, it's overthrown. And so he said, you know, religion and morality are indispensable supports to good political prosperity. So Al is going to talk about Alex de Tocqueville. Alexis. Alexis. Alexis de Tocqueville, right. that French writer who wrote Actually, he's a judge. Okay, so Alexis de Tocqueville <laughs> discovers the importance of religion in America. You just let me handle well, my part. He was a writer, too. He did write Well, Democracy. he did write a book. That's right. Yeah. He wrote this book, Democracy in America. It's a great read. Okay, so he's a French judge that came to America in 1831 to study our legal system because he had heard that there were the jails were in America were empty. And the reason that's unusual is because in France... When a new regime comes into power, that king or the ruler or the prime minister or whatever rounds up all the opposition and throws them in jail. So he's asking the people, what, what, what's going on here? Where's your government? And the people would say, well, we're the government. So guess what? So Alexis de Tocqueville started to, started to investigate America's government and what's going on in the, in the schools and what's going on in the churches 
and he wrote this book called Democracy in America. And this is what, what's so funny? And this is what he looks like. Yeah, there's, that's what he looks like. So that, that's Alexis de Tocqueville. And he said something really interesting. On my arrival in the United States, the religious aspect of the country was the first thing that struck my attention. And the longer I stayed, the more I perceived the great political consequences resulting from this new state of things. Religion in America takes no direct part in the government of society, which is completely contrary to what he saw in France but it must be regarded as the first of their political institutions. I do not know whether all Americans have a sincere faith in their religion, for who can search the human heart? But I am certain that they hold it to be indispensable to the maintenance of Republican institutions. This opinion is not peculiar to a class of citizens or to a party, but it belongs to the whole nation and to every rank of society. Very interesting. In Europe, according to de Tocqueville, it had become popular to teach that religion and liberty were enemies. And of course he would think that because the church played such a huge influence on the government in France. And he says, in France, I had always, always seen the spirit of religion and the spirit of freedom marching in opposite directions. But in America, I found that they were intimately united. So you think about it, the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Heavenly Father and the gospel of freedom go hand in hand. They march together, one with another. And just as your conversion to Christ is a lifelong endeavor, freedom must continually be fought for and maintained so that there is a freedom of worship. So de Tocqueville describes the role of religion in the schools. De Tocqueville says, and this is in New England, he found that the schools, especially in New England, incorporated the basic tenets of religion right along with history and political science in order to prepare the student for adult life. He wrote, in New England, every citizen receives the elementary notions of human knowledge. Remember, we talked about that, religion, morality, and knowledge. He is taught, moreover, moreover, the doctrines and the evidences of his religion. That's the religion that Julian talked about, the universal religion, the history of his country, and the leading features of the Constitution. We don't do that in the schools today. That's why we're in this mess. In the states of Connecticut and Massachusetts, it is extremely rare, rare to find a man imperfectly acquainted with all these things, and a person wholly ignorant of them is sort of a phenomenon. Wow. So the Tocqueville saw a unique quality of this cohesive strength emanating from the clergy of the various churches in America, because he observed also that the clergy seemed anxious to maintain the separation of church and state, but he nevertheless observed that they had a great influence on the morals and customs of the public. In America, he noted, The clergy remains politically separated from the government, but nevertheless, they provide a moral stability among the people which permitted the government to prosper. So remember this, if you could write this down. In other words, there was a separation of church and state, but not a separation of state and religion. State and religion. So the one quote that I have to share with you is just beautiful. And this is in the Tocqueville book before I turn it back over to Julene. I sought for the greatness and genius of America and her commodious harbors and her ample rivers, and it was not there. And her fertile fields and boundless prairies, and it was not there. And her rich mines and her vast world commerce, and it was not there. Not until I went into the churches of America and heard her pulpits flame with righteousness that I understand the secret of her genius and power. And here's the most important statement of this. America is great, Julene, because America is good. And if America ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. 
America is good, is great because she's good. And if she ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. So the founders wanted the federal government excluded from all problems related to religion and the churches because the founders, man, they wanted, they didn't want the churches to run the government. They didn't want that. They wanted a separation of church and state, and they didn't want the states to have a prescribed religion that they were that they were beholden to because in order to run for political office, you had to have, so there were seven states, Connecticut, the Congressional Ch Congregational Church, New Jersey, Protestant, Maryland, Christian. If you were not those things, you could not hold office. So the founders campaigned for equality of all religions. And Thomas Jefferson and James Madison were the foremost among the founders that were pushing this legal equality for all religions, both Christian and non-Christian. In fact, Jefferson sought to de-establish de the official church of Virginia in 1776, and they wanted to do it by persuasion, not by federal fiat. They wanted the federal government to stay out of it. So then they went from state to state, encouraging them to, to respect and promote all faiths and religion equally. Okay, Jane. Yeah, so there's a mis, uh, dis, a distort, distort, distortion and a misalignment of the separation of church and state. So what our founders meant by state, especially Thomas Jefferson, who declared that statement was the federal government. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute. Uh, justice Story, who was a, a Supreme Court justice from 1812 to 1845, one, known as one of the greatest scholars to ever serve in the Supreme Court. Um, pointed out why the founders wanted the states uh, um, to be excluded, not states, excuse me. Let, let me just read this. The founders, as well as the states themselves, felt the federal government should be absolutely excluded from settling questions on religion. So what our founders wanted is they wanted the states to determine religion, not the federal state, okay, the federal government. And here Story said, look, in some states, the Episcopalians are more predominant, or the Presbyterians in other states, or the or the con con Congregationalist in <laughs> other states. He said, if the federal government got involved in religions in the states, there would always be strife and uh, perpetual jealousy. And so he said, thus, the whole power over the subject of religion should be left exclusively to the state governments to be acted upon on their own sense of justice for that state. Okay. So they're saying the founders wanted the, the um, federal government to be out of all religious matters and for the states that uh, understand, you know, the leanings of the people best to dictate that. And Jefferson and Madison emphasized that, that as well. Jefferson said, there is not a shadow of right in the general government to intermeddle with religion, its least little interference with it should be a most flagrant usurpation. So they wanted no involvement from the federal uh, government. And Jefferson took that identical position and he wrote about it in the Kentucky Resolution. And he also, Jefferson in that Kentucky Resolution talked about the courts not being involved in intermeddling with religious matters as well. So imagine how he would feel then in the 1900s when the Supreme Court indeed <laughs> meddled with religious uh, beliefs and practices of people when they pulled school prayer in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. And we talk about this in the Healing of America seminars. They pulled prayer out of school. They pulled Bible reading out of school. They pulled religious clubs or religious instruction out of school. So Thomas Jefferson, when he was in the Virginia legislature, he actually initiated a, a bill for a day of fasting and prayer, okay, at the state level. But when he would become president, there was a group of Danbury uh, Baptists from Connecticut who wanted them, him to get involved in some religious matters in their state. And that's when he said there should be a separation between church and state. But what he meant was the federal government 
But in recent years, the last several decades, the Supreme Court has used that metaphor of separation of church and state as an excuse to meddle in religious issues arising within various states. And it's actually forced the states to take that same hands-off position towards religion that the, uh, the, the restriction originally applied to, which was only federal government, a federal state is what uh, uh, Jefferson intended. He wanted states to get involved with religion, not federal states. And um, look, Jefferson and Madison in their writings, they said all religions and states should be encouraged because it's what promotes the moral fiber and the religious tone of the people. So you can see then that it would have been, it would have been impossible uh, if there had been an impenetrable wall between the church and the state at the state level. Jefferson's wall was clearly intended only for the federal government. And so you need to understand when you hear people saying, oh, there should be a separation of church and state. No, that's the, he meant the federal state. And, and, and you can see that clearly how, how Jefferson t- talks about uh, uh, religion or um, uh you know, that's manifested within the states. In Jefferson's second inaugural address, he talks about it again, how religious exercises are suited to um, the discipline and direction of a state or church authority. And he encouraged religious institutions of all kinds because it was in the public interest uh, for good moral stability needed for strong government and happiness of mankind. And he actually was quite proud, Thomas Jefferson, when he talked about, you know, um, contrary to what the Supreme Court has, has, you know, done as far as raising up a wall between state government and religions, it was radically different from what the founders and, and Jefferson uh, intended. I think it's really interesting, a year and a half ago, a coach in Washington, his name is Kennedy, for seven years he would go and pray after the games at the 50 yard line. And sometimes he would pray by himself and sometimes little teammates, some of the you know, students or players would join him. Well, someone caught wind of this and they fired him. And so he, he took him to court and it went to the district court. And they, they said that he should have been fired because he was establishing religion by praying on the 50 yard line after the game. So he appealed it to the, to the appellate court and they held that his prayer was an establishment of religion, the, the federal court. And so guess what? He appealed it to the Supreme Court and in January, they agreed to hear that case. Now, like what, 10,000 cases are brought before the Supreme Court and they only hear about 190 to 200 and they're gonna hear that case by the end of this year. So watch to see because our founding fathers never intended the courts to get involved with what a coach is doing in that state. In fact, Jefferson was so proud of his state of Virginia um, he says that there were four churches in his community, uh, but they didn't have actual church buildings. And so they used the courthouse as the common temple. On one Sunday, it was the Episcopalians. On the other, it was a Presbyterian. On the other Sunday, it was a Methodist congregation. And the uh, fourth, the Baptists. And they would all meet together. And even they would just show up for church, even if it wasn't their right Sunday, because he said they would join in hymning. Uh, hymning to their maker and they listen with attention and devotion to each other's preachers. So you can't help but ask that modern Supreme Court, where was the wall of separation between the church and the state in Thomas Jefferson's uh, town when the courthouse was approved to be their common temple or church house? And uh, Jefferson talks about that with pride. And so we have come to the end of our lesson today. Our conclusion, religious principles, do do not be fooled. Look, if you listen to modern day historians, they will tell you that Thomas Jefferson, you know, didn't even believe in God or he was a deist or he wasn't spiritual. And we know that's not true as you read his writings. And they'll certainly say Benjamin Franklin was a perverted hypocrite with illegitimate children. But as you read their writings and how they felt and how they lived, you can see that that is not truth. What doctrines were Americans 
so anxious to teach one another in order that they might remain united and well-governed. It was these religious precepts that turned out to be the heart and the soul of the entire American political philosophies. Thus, religion and the American institutions of freedom were combined. In fact, the founders had taken those five principles of universal uh, religion. Did your, did your religion fall in, in those sound uh, religions, Benjamin Franklin would say? They built the whole constitutional framework on top of the sanctity of civil rights, that's secular rights, and property rights, so there would be justice as well as the obligation of citizens to support the constitution in supporting their inalienable God-given rights. And these were all based on this religious precepts. Therefore, they established these these general principles that without religion, without adherence to the creator's order of things or his laws or his revealed divine law, that the government of free people could not be maintained. And that was, that was their findings and their pleadings that they're giving us from, from the grave, so to speak. So you will definitely want to go back and reread principles three and four. I really think we invite you. We invite you, we invite you that the, these principles, these four principles are so foundational that when things get heated in an argument, you take them back to, well, what did the supreme creator of the universe, what did he have to say about this? What was his order of the universe? What was his natural law that has been revealed in divine law, our creator? And so next week, we're going to talk about principles. We're going to do three principles next week. We're picking up the pace because we want to, we want to finish this class in 12 weeks. We're going to talk about principle five, the responsibility, our responsibility to God and this notion, principle six, that we're all created equal. What does that mean? And number seven, what is the proper role of government? So I really do think, though, that that what we the principles we've learned thus far are really compelling to our success in our homes, in our neighborhoods and in our nation that as we continue to look to the supreme creator, God, and to his laws, his natural laws, and his order of things for solutions and deliverance and for freedom, and not to government and not to presidents or those kind of programs, but as we look to God and as we make family time a high priority and we take our children to God and to the word, his natural laws contained in divine revealed law, that um, will shore them up. And as we continue to meet online or uh, in, in this cottage meeting, or as you begin to maybe form cottage meetings, once you've maybe studied with us for a time, as you begin to form these cottage meetings and, and to study what did, what are the quotes? What did our founders believe about religion? And what did they mean in the constitution? And so we study it from their viewpoint, we will be compelled to do something. Right. And you're, you're here tonight. So maybe you've been doing these things and you've been compelled to seek us out and to find us and to show up at 930 Eastern Standard Time or, or whatever time zone that you are in and to get your little book. And as you as you as you are compelled to do something as you're turning to God and you're trying to teach these principles, if it's just a little text to your grandkids, if all your kids are out of the house and as you're studying these principles and reading them and doing your homework and filling in the blanks, you will be compelled to do something. It might be going to some community meetings or supporting some good candidates or starting a little text devotional or praying with your kids at night. As you do something, it will justify the heavens to intervene and heal our land, as God promises in Second Chronicles 7.14. And so that is our class tonight. <laughs>